the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to hear from Owen Strahan, author of Christianity and Wokeness. And later this hour, we'll talk with James J. Carafano, leading expert in national security and foreign policy. We're going to talk about uh, what China might be learning from Putin in this Ukraine invasion. Lots of speculation as to whether or not this might accelerate his timeline, postpone it, or give him second thoughts. We'll consider uh, what he's written in his column as to what we might expect. But first, a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, in a warning ignored, a former Keystone XL pipeline worker said the energy industry tried to warn President Biden against policies hindering U.S. oil and gas production. Policies, the worker said, have caused the coming energy crisis. And in a Putin miscalculation, Vladimir Putin underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian resistance and backlash from U.S. and Western allies. And congressional leaders reached a bipartisan deal for $13.6 billion to help Ukraine, European allies, plus pandemic relief in a $1.5 trillion measure for federal agencies. Well, enacting a no-fly zone and subsequently enforcing one would push the global community closer to a potential world war. That's according to former U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency agent Rebecca Koffler, warning in a series of tweets where she also rebuked Russian experts who wrote a letter to the Biden administration calling for one. Well, same experts who got UKR, RUS into this conflict in the first place by promoting foolish ideas not grounded in reality, she wrote or tweeted, sharing a report from The Hill now dragging us into World War Three. In a case of voting mishaps, the elections administrator in Harris County, Texas, resigned following voting mishaps, including 10,000 mail in ballots not being tallied. U.S. intelligence officials in January assessed that Russia did not want a direct conflict with U.S. forces. Pennsylvania uh, former hedge fund CEO David McCormick has an advantage in Pennsylvania's GOP Senate primary, although many voters are undecided. Calling a response necessary, an international prosecutor warns lawmakers tyrants like China will take advantage if there is an inadequate response to Russia's aggression. We'll talk more about that with James Carafano later this hour. In another no-fly request, a former Ukrainian MP, Hannah Hopko, has asked President Biden for a no-fly zone over her country. The answer has consistently been no. Mike Pompeo says with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've witnessed the invasion of a free and sovereign nation by a reckless dictator who cares little for peace. Colin Reed points out that as it sputters into year two, the Biden presidency has been defined by two troubling and related statistics, approval ratings and energy costs. Frank J. Silufo and Sharon Kardash ask why cyber hasn't figured more prominently in Russia's war on Ukraine. Now, some are suggesting it's coming. The other shoe will drop. Senator Marco Rubio suggests Russia's economy is proving much less resilient than the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people. 
In other news, Reggie Miller speaks out. WNBA baller Brittany Griner, uh, her arrest in Russia has sparked fears about her safety and prayers that she will be able to make a safe trip home. Not really clear what her status is, at least to the general public. Perhaps the State Department knows more. Membership-only warehouses Costco and Sam's Club are trying to dominate the gas business as prices nationwide continue to skyrocket. And if they have lower prices, they'll probably succeed. President Biden announced a ban on Russian oil. Not even Joe Biden's allies on Capitol Hill bought the excuses he slung while announcing an embargo on Russian oil imports. The president claimed that high gas prices resulted from oil producers gouging consumers and denied entirely that he had restricted production. And the president's call to Middle East leaders for help on gas prices has gone unanswered. Fellow Democrats, realizing the midterms are right around the corner, denounced Biden for going to dictators for oil. Sean Spicer says U.S. reached its highest import of Russian oil under Biden, 847,000 barrels a day in May of 2021. During Trump, U.S. imported an average of 456,000 barrels a day. First year of Biden in office, 2021, it rose to 672,000 barrels a day, an increase of more than 40 percent. Meanwhile, the Pentagon rejected Poland's offer to provide fighter jets for Ukraine. Well, the president on gas prices, he blames Russia, saying he can't do much. When pressed by a reporter, he treated the crisis as just another day in the office. From Guy Benson, Putin did it, ain't going to fly here. This pain predates the current crisis in Europe, which will make it worse. Putin doesn't uh, does deserve some blame, of course, but this is a shameless political dodge. Right after he was inaugurated, the president stopped oil and gas leasing on public lands and waters, and he hailed himself as a hero for doing so. Tom Cotton points out. Last June, President Biden blocked oil leasing in Alaska. This oil could have helped lower the cost of gas. Instead, Biden is begging Venezuela and Iran to increase production. And finally, Kevin McCarthy weighs in on Twitter. Gas prices have risen nearly every single month of Joe Biden's presidency. Today, it is Russia's fault. Before that, it was OPEC's fault. Before that, it was because the virus Serious question, how bad will gas prices have to be before he accepts some responsibility? And the United Nations told its uh, communications staff not to reference the Ukraine war or invasion. Instead, they are to call it a conflict, you know, like between siblings. Well, the U.N. has since denied charges that they are asking their people to speak of this conflict in a particular way. Higher gas prices have the greatest effect on low-income Americans, in a statement of the obvious. Uh, both, um, uh, But both um, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg recently said people who worry about high gas prices should buy electric cars as if those people can easily afford them at about $60,000 a pop. According to Pew, 42% of lower-income households say higher gas prices greatly affects their financial situation. And Katie Pavlich says, it's like these people don't know how electric cars are made, that they uh, their components have to be mined with machines fueled by oil, shipped across the ocean with oil. It's as if because they can't see it happening in China, it doesn't exist. No clue how things really work. Well, President Biden is seeking $2.6 billion in tax dollars to promote gender equity worldwide. Ironic coming from a president who wants men allowed to compete as women. Well, from Ben Shapiro on Biden's version of gender equity, maybe we ought to ask Afghan women how that's going for them. 
from Alexandra DeSantis, DeSantis rather, today is International Women's Day. It was actually yesterday. And part of me would love to celebrate that. Another part of me is wondering how we're supposed to celebrate when half of Democrats see women's rights as an opportunity to promote abortion and the other half can't even explain what a woman is. Well, the teachers unions are not uh, done with forcing kids to wear masks as the countdown in Oregon and Washington continues when we can remove our mask by state edict. In Seattle, Los Angeles and Chicago, among others, they're pushing back on these those wanting uh, to lift the mandates from Dennis Prager. He points out in Town Hall Review, it isn't the pandemic that has ruined our kids education. It's teachers, teachers unions and the left wing media like The New York Times. It's not the pandemic. It's the lockdown. It's the most uh, scared class of human beings in society. Politico says feminists are troubled by trans activism and they're labeled radical. The political article, it uses trans activist language, even in the headline, which reads the unlikely political alliance against trans care against trans care. Well, the article is loaded with misinformation disguised as news. Well, the backlash against Russians is reaching beyond their borders. The Montreal Symphony dropped a Russian piano prodigy from their concerts. The Metropolitan Opera booted Russian singer Anne Netrebko. One of the most troubling Russian restaurants in New York are getting harassed. Barry Weiss points out the obvious. This behavior is anti-American and wrong. The fact that you happen to be Russian by um, birth and background does not um, mean that you are sitting alongside the president there and suggesting this is a good thing in uh, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, in uh, Ukraine. Franklin Graham is asking all Christians worldwide to pray for Ukraine. He explained, I'm grateful for the churches and pastors across Ukraine and uh, how they're ministering to their communities during these dark days. The Baptist Union of Ukraine put out this urgent request for prayer over the next two days. They're asking for every Christian worldwide to pray. He's even asked that we pray for Vladimir Putin, from which he's received some backlash. How you pray for Vladimir Putin matters, but praying for him as the person responsible for the violence we're witnessing, it seems to me biblical and altogether the right thing to do. A Washington school sent a second grader to the principal's office for sharing her faith. From that story, attorneys with the American Center for Law and Justice were informed that the North Hill Elementary School student had been sent to the principal's office 10 times since the first year simply for sharing the gospel on the school playground. School staff members were also scouring through the young girl's backpack before she was allowed to enter the school in search of a Bible, religious literature, or other contraband like a cross. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the day's headlines. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with James J. Carafano, a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. We'll talk about what China might be learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with James J. Carafano, a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. We're going to talk about what China is learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. Some are speculating this might accelerate the timeline for China to invade Taiwan. Some are suggesting it might push it back. Others, maybe uh, Xi Jinping is scratching his head. We'll talk with uh, Carafano about what he believes is happening uh, as China observes 
Russia. Well, the gutsy U.N. follows uh, Putin's censorship lead. The United Nations was caught directing its staff in an email sent on Monday not to refer to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as either a war or an invasion, but instead to call it a conflict or military offense. Offensive. Well, it is certainly that offensive. Uh, The U.N. instruction, which it claims was not intended to establish official policy to the staff, conveniently came after Vladimir Putin's strikingly similar crackdown on free speech. Putin is banning any press in Russia from referring to his war or invasion, which he wants them to uh, call a special military operation. The U.N. stated rationale for its directive was concern over um, repetitive... I've never heard this word put quite this way. Anyway, to repeat the thing and it being a risk and wanting to appear impartial. Should the United Nations appear impartial? Well, the great irony here is that it um, was during a U.N. Security Council meeting to prevent a Russian invasion of Ukraine that Putin launched his invasion. After little more than a week since the war started, a feckless U.N. is caught balking at calling a spade a spade. As Ukraine Foreign Minister Dmitry Kulebi observed, it's hard to believe that the U.N. could essentially impose the same kind of censorship that the Kremlin imposes inside Russia. He added that the U.N.'s reputation is at stake, assuming it has a good reputation to tarnish. Well, the first January 6th Capitol rioter has been convicted in court. Guy Riffitt became the first individual involved in the January 6th Capitol riot to be convicted in court after a jury found him guilty on all counts. Riffitt, a native of Texas, was found guilty of obstruction charges, a gun charge, and charges related to riling up the mob. While over 200 or of the more than 750 charged J6 rioters, that's the abbreviation, have already pled guilty to various charges, Refitz was the first case to go, on, go to trial, and the result may encourage more to seek plea deals. While Refit never entered the Capitol, he was pepper sprayed by police before he could do so. His being found guilty of obstructing an official proceeding, which holds the heftiest sentencing penalty, has been dismissed by other judges regarding the rioters. This will likely set up an issue for the Supreme Court to weigh in on. In other news, President Biden sent the 20th hijacker of 9-11 back home. Mohammed Mani Ahmad al Katani, the Saudi national dubbed the 20th hijacker of 9-11, has been released from Guantanamo Bay, where he was uh, has been detained for nearly two decades. He's been handed over to Saudi Arabia. Now, 46 al-Ghatani uh, was uh, captured in August of 2001 as he uh, sought to enter the U.S. to join the 9-11 plotters, is said to be uh, suffering from mental illness. Joe Biden's Defense Department released a statement explaining the decision. On June 9th, 2021, the Periodic Review Board process uh, determined that law of war detention of uh, Mr. Uh, Al-Ghatani was no longer necessary to protect against a continuing significant threat to the national security of the United States. And the PRB recommended that Al-Ghatani be uh, repatriated to his native country of Saudi Arabia, subject to security and humane treatment assurances. It is reported that he will receive treatment at a psychiatric facility in Saudi Arabia, while his lawyers claim that he has displayed symptoms of schizophrenia since a young age. The Chicago Teachers Union is engaged in shameless COVID alarmism. 
a Chicago teachers union that worked to successfully stymie efforts to reopen schools throughout the pandemic, shamelessly used the death of a parent to justify its COVID alarmism. It now turns out that the parent, 32-year-old Denisha Henry, whom the union claimed in a staged rally, had died from COVID, did not die from the novel virus, but from alcoholism. Henry's toxicity report established that she died from chronic ethanolism, not COVID. Despite the actual reason for Henry's death, the union claimed, one mother complained bitterly on social media that she was never contacted by a contact tracer. Within a week, she was dead, end quote. It used Henry's death to defend its opposition to the push to reopen schools. As early as January of last year, the American Academy of Pediatrics observed in a study that in-school transmission of COVID was extremely rare and advised that schools can stay open safely in communities with widespread community transmission. Lawmakers reached a deal on the $1.5 trillion spending bill to avoid a shutdown and to aid Ukraine. The hit to your pocketbook from higher gas prices, $2,000 a year. Saudi, UAE, the United Arab Emirates leaders are ignoring President Biden when he calls to talk gas prices. Two Democrat senators joined Republicans in calling for the U.S. to increase domestic oil production. The president's response, I can't do much right now. Russia's responsible. The Pentagon shot down the Polish plan to provide MiGs uh, to Ukraine and the left media blasts the hypocrisy of sanctioning Russia, but not Israel, question mark. I added the question mark. They didn't. The U.S. trade deficit hit a record high in January. And Hunter Biden, the son of the president, is still listed as part owner of a Chinese firm, despite his divestment claim. You can read more about that in The Washington Examiner. Well, on this day in history, 1841. The U.S. Supreme Court in United States versus the Amistad rules seven to one that a group of illegally enslaved Africans who were captured off the U.S. coast after they rebelled and seized control of a Spanish ship, La Amistad, should be set free. That proved to be much more difficult than uh, expected. 1862, during the Civil War of the Ironclads USS Monitor and CSS Virginia, formerly USS Merrimack, Battle for five hours to a draw at Hampton Roads, Virginia. On this day in history, 1916, during World War I, Germany declared war on Portugal. 1933, Congress, called into special session by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, begins its hundred days of enacting New Deal legislation. 1935, Porky Pig first appears in the Warner Brothers animated short, I've got a, I haven't got a hat. I just thought I'd throw that in. On this day in history, 1945, during World War II, U.S. B-29 bombers began launching incendiary bomb attacks against Tokyo, resulting in approximately 100,000 deaths. 1954, CBS newsman uh, Edward Murrow critically reviews Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy's anti-communism campaign on See It Now. 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court in New York Times Company versus Sullivan raises the standard for public officials to prove they have been libeled in their official capacity by news organizations. 1989, the Senate rejects President George Herbert Walker Bush's nomination of John Tower to be defense secretary by a vote of 53 to 47. The next day, Bush would uh, tap Wyoming Representative Dick Cheney, who would win unanimous Senate approval. 
2009, President Obama lifts George W. Bush-era limits on using federal dollars for embryonic stem cell research. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, weeks after the shooting that left 17 people dead at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Governor Rick Scott signed a school safety bill that raises the minimum age to buy rifles to 21 and creates a program enabling some teachers and other school employees to carry guns. This prompts a lawsuit from the National Rifle Association. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue winding our way through the news. And also this hour, we'll talk with James J. Carafano, leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges, on what China's learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up uh, next, we'll hear from James J. Carafano, leading expert in national security and foreign policy, on what China might be learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. Lots of speculation about what China is likely to do and the timing of what they will do. We know that Taiwan is not a question mark, uh, given what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Representative Jim Banks said... uh, on Wednesday, that he introduced the No Oil for Terrorist Act to prevent President Biden from negotiating with terrorists for oil imports, imports rather, when the United States uh, could produce its own. A, um, uh, previously, uh, as previously reported, the administration has been in talks with Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and Iran about supplying the United States with oil. So far, they're not returning the president's calls. Uh, this is common sense. First and foremost, the uh, The congressman says uh, on day one of the Joe Biden presidency, he crushed the American energy sector by ending construction of the Keystone Pipeline. He stopped drilling on federal lands. He did everything that he could to destroy American owned and made energy sector. And he made us dependent on foreign oil again. Uh, Not uh, now. Yesterday, he finally this week, he finally did the right thing and he banned Russian oil imports. But at the same time, he's trading one for a couple of other bad guys, the congressman said. He's begging Venezuela and Maduro to give us more oil. And he's gone to the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world, Iran. And he's trying to push through a new Iran nuclear deal, which is disastrous for a lot of other reasons, to leverage more oil from a stated sponsor of terrorism. So my bill, the No Oil from Terrorist Act, would prevent this president from doing something that's absolutely foolish to do and negotiate with terrorists to get oil to bring to the United States when we could be producing it right here at home instead, thinking not just immediate but long term. Well, Banks went on to say, this is Representative Banks, that it's um, maddening that Russia is negotiating the Iran deal on behalf of the United States, and they are negotiating that rejected deal. Well, this is maddening as you uh, described it, but you got to go back in time a little bit. Remember that the Iran nuclear deal negotiated by President Barack Obama was a terrible deal. It gave pallets of cash to Iran to try to prevent them from building nuclear weapons, but instead it did the opposite. Donald Trump got us out of it. It was one of his key campaign promises that he made when he ran for president in 2016. He kept that promise and he ended the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. Now it seems that the current president, Joe Biden, is bent on making the same mistake that Barack Obama did. And part of this deal is to give Iran $100 billion. Let me repeat that, $100 billion, and would actually reward them for bad activities rather than punish them. And at the same time, you have Russia, who recognizes this as another opportunity for them to weaken America and to build up one of our adversaries in Iran. 
Well, it doesn't make any sense. There's no good explanation for it. It just goes to show that the president is a commander leading us into disaster and president. And this is another move on his part to be rejected. Well, the representative said there is a lot the United States can do to help Ukraine that it's not doing now. Uh, This administration, he went on to say, we've been calling on them for weeks to give aid to Ukraine, especially military weapons and ammunition. Zelensky has been calling for it for weeks. He continues those calls to this day. It doesn't make any sense why this administration has drug its feet, the congressman said. He went on to say the president, Joe Biden, has waited for many European countries to act first, and he's leading from behind. Today on the floor of the House, we'll be voting on a humanitarian package, but it's too little too late And they don't need blankets. They need American troops. They need military equipment and ammunition to fight back. And we've been dragging our feet and giving it uh, in giving it to them. Banks said the Ukrainian president is polling better than Biden among Americans. Well, he goes on from there. Again, the legislation that he has introduced um, called the No Oil from Terrorists Act to prevent the president from negotiating with just that. Well, nearly two dozen American companies involved with um, liquefied natural gas production were attacked by hackers in early February. That was two weeks prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A source familiar with the intelligence said that 21 American companies, including Chevron Corporation, uh, were targeted two weeks before Russia launched its multi-front war in Ukraine. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is working to confirm that the attacks Uh, emanated from Russia, but the source said that it's believed that this hack marked the first stage of Russia's effort to destabilize the U.S. energy industry. Well, the source said that the uh, computers belonging to current and former employees were hacked during the attack. Chevron takes the threat of malicious cyber activity seriously. That's according to a Chevron spokesperson. We have implemented the United States government's recommendations into our cybersecurity safeguards to protect Chevron's computing environment. Um, the other gas company did not immediately respond, but uh, was also or there was an attempt focused on them as well. Well, the president on Tuesday announced a ban on all imports to Russia, uh, to Russian oil, gas and energy to the United States, uh, targeting the main artery of Russia's economy with the president's uh, uh, Putin's war on in Ukraine. Russia is the third largest producer of oil in the world. Well, a devastating report came out Monday The average family will spend $2,000 more this year to put gasoline in their car, and that's not to mention heating their homes, but that's not all. Groceries will cost an extra $1,000 this year. It's a terrible blow to middle-class families. So what was the reaction of the Biden administration? They sent out Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, who must have been, um, well, that's the word I want to use here. Well, confused on Monday, doing his best impersonation of Marie Antoinette. She was uh, the out-of-touch French royal who, when informed that the people were starving, infamously replied, let them eat cake. She eventually lost her head, by the way. Well, as the average national price of gas surged past $4 a gallon, Buttigieg's advice to financially crushed Americans was to buy an electric car to save money. But the average cost of an electric car is about $60,000. That's twice the cost of the average a used car that American families are driving. Well, the obvious uh, doesn't, um, uh, the, the left doesn't understand economics, and it utterly uh, is utterly clueless about how average Americans live. In fact, I heard talking head after talking head make that same suggestion. We just need to run out and buy an electric vehicle. That's a dangerous combination, as we're clearly seeing right now. 
Buttigieg's response isn't surprising if you understand the warped worldview. You see your pain at the pump isn't an, in, uh, isn't an unfortunate accident. It's the whole point of the radical energy policy agenda. Last week, when he was asked why the administration wasn't doing more to procure and produce more domestic energy, Buttigieg replied, we also need to make sure that we're not uh, galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems, end quote. Of course, we wouldn't want any permanent solutions, would we? Not when our goal is long-term transformation to windmills and unicorn power. Well, in the meantime, you're just going to have to suffer, but don't take my word for it. There are others who are very clear about the radical agenda. Barack Obama said he wanted to bankrupt the coal industry. His energy secretary said they needed gas to be $10 a gallon. Hillary Clinton said she wanted to put coal miners out of work. Joe Biden said he wanted to phase out oil and the gas industry altogether. His political appointees are demanding that we bankrupt our energy companies in the name of climate change. They want to impose carbon taxes and social costs to energy, making it more expensive and forcing you to change your behavior the way you live. Again, high gas prices are not an accident. This is all part of a strategy, the Green New Deal plan. What wasn't part of that uh, strategy, one would assume, is the national security connected with it all. Well, yesterday, President Biden went on the attack. He banned imports to Russian oil, which are up because uh, because of him, and then attacked the American energy industry. Incredibly, he accused U.S. oil companies of price gouging and not doing enough drilling. The energy industry is hitting back. Um, This president started this administration by killing the Keystone Pipeline from Canada and approving Putin's pipeline to Europe. So I suppose you shouldn't expect much else. And then, of course, on the anniversary uh, of the uh, death of General uh, Soleimani, Iranian officials demanded that Donald Trump and other American war criminals be put on trial. If if they weren't, Iran would seek its own revenge. And we are now seeking oil from Iran. It is a rather convoluted uh, issue at this point. It's not producing what we need most, affordable energy to fuel the U.S. economy and to make sure that our national security remains intact. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from James J. Carafano, leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges with the Heritage Foundation, on what China is learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that Vladimir Putin could never rest easy without the Russian flag flying over Kiev. Never doubt for a second that Xi Jinping feels the same way about Taiwan. The president of China certainly hopes in his lifetime to see the communist flag flutter above Taipei. So the obvious question is whether the current conflict holds any lessons for China and its cause. Well, here to talk with us about that very thing is James J. Carafano. He is a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges on what China may in fact be learning from what we're all observing from our armchairs. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be on the best show on radio. (laughs) Hey, thank you. You know, this is a question I think a lot of us are pondering because we wonder if this is going to embolden China, if it's going to make it more reluctant. And you write about that very thing. So let's begin with what China is learning from not only Putin's invasion at this time, but how it's going. Yeah, so probably not the lessons that they wanted to learn First of all, I make clear to people, it's absolutely true that that Xi wants to reconquer Taiwan. That's not up for discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but he will do that on his timeline. 
and and he didn't need encouragement or the example of Putin to, to do this. So Xi will do this if and when he thinks he can. What they're learning is that Russia's actually turned out to be not such a great partner for China because, you know, for China, the war in Ukraine is much more about Europe than it is about Taiwan. China wants a weakened, distracted, and divided Europe because that that's better for China. I mean, their whole strategy has always been to divide and conquer in Europe. And so the Russians essentially were, were doing a stalking horse for them. The Russians, you know, attacking Ukraine and, and weakening NATO, that that's like that's the dream scenario for China. But things have turned out exactly like they had wanted. I mean, the, the Russians, I'm sure, told the Chinese, hey, don't worry. You know, we'll wait till after the Olympics. We'll be done in a couple of days. And then, you know, everybody will just, you know, you, you look the other way and go back to normal. It's been a terrible protracted campaign. Um, even if the Russians conquer all of Ukraine, to occupy Ukraine will, in, will require basically the entire Russian military. And, and this is a country that will be like 40 million people who are starving, have no electricity, and, and their infrastructure has been completely destroyed. That is going to be a heavy burden, not to mention the, the, the incredibly crushing blow on, or, or the, the, the damage to the Russian economy. So here you have China with basically a partner, which is an economic basket case the China, that the Chinese cannot bail out. Um, and, and here is China essentially defending the indefensible. I mean, arguing you know, that the Russians are the just, you know, I mean, that's completely not credible in the world. And, and so it's damaging to them uh, and their legitimacy. Um, so, yeah, I don't, think the, I don't think the Chinese right now are the happiest campers. I mean, this all, they may get through all this, and, but right now they're, they're not, they can't be very ecstatic about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And now Beijing has already had the impression that the West is weak. Russia miscalculated that the this invasion would make the the West weaker. Um, how has that calculus uh, impacted Beijing's impression? Obviously, NATO has gotten a bit stronger. We don't know if that's going to last. And there's a lot of right. talk and sentiment, less action. But your thoughts on how this will impact China's uh, impression of the West? And how it might respond if if China or when China moves forward. Yeah, so there, I think there are two really Im- important observations there because it's a, actually a fantastic question. It's exactly the, the question to go to. One is, look, by their nature, these regimes always want to believe that free, open societies are weaker. I mean, if you if you remember Osama bin Laden thought America was a paper tiger after nine eleven, they would just collapse if they were attacked. Um, you know, eerily, this this rings of the 1930s. You know, Tojo, who lived in the United States for a while, said, "Well, Americans are a weak people; they just love jazz." You know, um, Hitler cheered the day after Pearl Harbor because he thought, "Oh, Americans will collapse." He, Hitler cheered the day of the Normandy invasion because he thought, you know, they would just crush us because we're weak. So it's not surprising that Xi and Putin, that the leaders of China and Russia, have this same belief that. That, that we are weak and we'll just, you know, fold like a cheap suit. Um, having said that, uh, look, this would not have happened. I mean, all this whole process started in 2014 when Obama was president. Um, Putin thought Americans are leaving Europe. Uh, the, the Europe's getting woke. It's weak and divided. And then, you know, he took a pause when Trump was in office, but then he went back, right back to doing that before. So they, they did think 
that the West was weak and wouldn't respond to this. Uh, and um, and so that's that's why they did it. But I think I think the Chinese are going to wait. I mean, if I were China, you know, let's wait and see what happens. How, however, this war turns out, this is only the crisis before the next crisis, unless. Europe and, and the United States, the transatlantic community, do two things. The things that allow Putin to threaten Europe are he has a military and he sells people out of energy so he can do energy blackmail. If you, if you take those things off the table, Putin is neutered and irrelevant. If you don't, you're, you're going to be right back where we were in the next crisis, where we are in this crisis. So that means NATO's got to stand up and strengthen its conventional nuclear deterrence. That means allies have to do their part. and We have to do our part. Um, we have to move to energy independence. Um, Europe has to be able to have affordable, reliable, abundant energy without being dependent on uh, Russia. If we do those two things, that will strike fear in the heart of China because they'll know we are serious about protecting our interests. But if when this crisis is over, however it resolves itself, if we go back to saying, well, you know, spend 2% on GDP or not, doesn't really matter. Um, the United States, we're not going to really in defense. Um, we're, we're interested in green energy transition, so we don't really care if people can get oil and gas. If we go back to that, then the Chinese will just say, oh, you know, um, the Americans are going back to sleepwalking through history. On the other hand, if we really wake up and, and do those two things, the Chinese will be afraid. You write that uh, referring to Xi, uh, one of the bigger lessons that he did not anticipate. He's been thrilled to watch the West commit economic suicide with its climate action plan that impoverishes their economies while doing little to address climate issues. Even as the China economy thrives, what if uh, if this war actually causes the West to wake up and adopt policies that deliver reliable, affordable, and abundant energy without Russian oil and gas? Uh, Beijing was right to think the West was in the process of geopolitical suicide. Are we waking up? I'm, I'm hearing the White House press secretary and the president say, you know, there's nothing we can do about this. We're not going to develop our own uh, energy independence. Are you optimistic that we're learning that lesson that will translate ultimately to uh, Xi, that um, this is a greater threat than we had anticipated? Well, I, I'm, it's very clear that the White House has not learned that lesson. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I do think there's a good chance that Americans may have learned that lesson. I think one of the things, you know, the, the, the they've done such a great job getting everybody worked up over climate change that you know, if you look across political parties and demographics, everybody thinks that that doing what we can to protect our planet is important. So they were successful. But, but now that they've got all our attention and we actually look at their plan, we actually see it's all about politics and power, and it really has nothing to do with actually being a good steward of the planet or, or, or energy. And so maybe we will wake up. So, you know, what's really interesting is, look, since Biden has come into office, the one part of the energy sector which has shown almost no growth is renewables. Hmm. So think about that. They, they've had a war on gas and oil trying to prevent gas and oil and 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 they're and they're actually producing and the part of the economy that they absolutely love and lavish all their praise on you know renewables have grown like nothing and that there's a reason for that which is this idea that you can power an economy based on renewables defies the laws of physics and chemistry and economics 
And so wishing it were so it doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, there's talk now of the price of gasoline going to $10 a gallon or $15 a gallon. You know what? It could go to $50 a gallon. You're still never going to get to the point where renewal, renewables can power the American economy. It's That's just right. not going to happen. So if we can't figure out a way to use gas and oil and coal and nuclear and and also figure out a way to address environmental issues, then then we're not going to make it. And and the, this is the thing is we have to have energy to power our society. That is not an option. So you, having a strategy that doesn't actually work isn't really a good option. And I just think that the, the Biden, the green energy agenda is now it's obvious what it is. It was agenda about politics and power and, and not about electrical power, about political power. It has nothing to do with actually being a good steward of the planet or with making sure Americans have reliable, affordable and abundant energy. Just one final question as our time is just about out. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked a question recently on whether or not the United States should uh, finally and officially recognize Taiwan. He said, yes, that that's something we should do. Your thoughts on that and what impact that would likely have on China's calculation or perhaps miscalculation moving forward with Taiwan? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter. They're going to invade. I mean, if they want to invade Taiwan, they're going to invade whether it declares independence or Mm -hmm. not. So, so somehow that this means anything to the Chinese is nonsense. And but more importantly is, this is not a decision for us to make. Our we are there to support the people of Taiwan. They get to decide. If, look, if they want to declare their independence, that's their business. It's it's not our business to tell them what to do. They're the ones living next to China. They're the ones that are responsible for their people, their economy, their politics, and their diplomacy. You know, we should no more be dictating to them to declare independence than uh, than we should be dictating to the Ukrainians on on negotiating with the Russians. Yeah, absolutely. James J. Carafano, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, James Carafano is a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges on what China's learning from Putin's Ukraine invasion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. And when we return, Owen Strahan, Christianity and Wokeness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've been looking forward to the conversation we're just about to have with Dr. Owen Strand. He's the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. It's published by Salem Books. He points out that wokeness has been a term that's widely used by the media and the left since 2014. Well, since then, the idea of wokeness has bled into the culture, into television, and now even our churches. Preachers are speaking on critical race theory, telling their congregations that silence is violence and that whiteness is white supremacy. And while these pastors might mean well, this so-called woke gospel is not true justice or true Christianity. Well, Dr. Um, uh, Strand is the provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and senior fellow with the Family Research Council. He's become an expert on social justice and wokeness. In his latest book, Christianity and Wokeness, 
Uh, Dr. Strand writes about the alternative religion of wokeness, one that is far from Christ's teaching. And by diving into the teachings of critical race theory and its problematic cousin, wokeness, Dr. Strand has a simple warning to the American church. By embracing wokeness, you're embracing teaching antithetical to the gospel. And that's an important point we need to uh, to ponder here today. Well, again, Dr. Strand is a provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and a senior fellow with the Family Research Council, earned his Ph.D. in theology from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the author of some 20 books, including Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind. He lives with his family in Conway, Arkansas, and I am just delighted that he is with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us for having you back on. I really appreciate it. Well, this is such an important topic, and I fear that many of us are using the words or even referencing some of the concepts without fully understanding what they mean or the implications of it. So this is such a timely book. And as the title would suggest, this book is written uh, for those who embrace a Christian worldview or at least have some curiosity about a Christian worldview to discover whether or not it's compatible. Wokeness or critical race theory is compatible uh, with a biblical worldview. Yes, that's exactly right. Fundamentally, wokeness means uh, being awake to the nature of America as a systemically racist and uh, unjustly unequal society. So when you wake up to that, you become essentially an activist against that situation, that complex of factors. And then critical race theory means uh, this this academic discipline, it signals this academic discipline that trains you to understand that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics such that white people effectively function as oppressors who foment white supremacy, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And people of color are uh, are structurally oppressed people, uh, no matter what their situation is, whether they are millionaires or poor, it does not matter. That's how critical race theory approaches uh, our society. So these these ideologies, as you very rightly said just a minute ago, are cousins. They're very similar. They're simpatico with one another, and they pose a major threat to the Christian faith today. Tragically, very few Christians are being warned about these mm-hmm. systems, and even fewer still are being trained to understand them. And so that means that the gospel and the Christian worldview more generally is in danger of being hijacked today. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize before we move on is as an African-American, I know that racism exists in this country, but I wholly reject critical race theory. One of the uh, components of it is there's no redemption. It's not a, a matter of identifying racism as it exists either systematically or in the life of the individual, there's no redemption. You will always be the oppressor. I will always be the victim. There's no reconciliation or restoration. You are perpetually owing the victim, which would be me in this case. Um, and it just, it's again, antithetical to the Christian principle of redemption through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can kind of understand how it has a sort of secular pull to it. If you take grace out of your worldview, If you take forgiveness and unity in Christ out of your way of thinking, honestly, this way of thought makes a lot of sense because it's basically a world of holding one another to account writ large across generations. Now, I don't mean to to indicate that these concepts are sound, but I do mean if you deny the existence of forgiveness, of grace, 
of getting over past sins, of making societal progress, if you believe that the, the evils of the past can never be overcome, then this is the system for you, because it allows you basically to stereotype people, to buy into race essentialism, the, the vision that there is a hard and fast reality of whiteness and blackness, for example, that separates us as human people. And then you can live in this kind of perpetual victimhood cycle where, yes, America has real failings and sins in its past. Uh, it, it, it hasn't magically extinguished them in the present, and we're going to fight partiality in the future. But this system teaches you that America is actually more racist today mm-hmm in 2021 than in the days of white supremacy in the 19th century. And that is a claim that shows you that we are not in a system that is actually working against racism and for justice here. We are working with a system that is pro-racism in a new form, even though very few people know it to be that. Mm. And unlike the civil rights movement, the goal isn't a level playing field where we all have equal opportunity uh, to develop our gifts and to pursue opportunities. That's that's not the goal. It is to foment the, the kind of disunity that says you will owe me always and I will uh, take from you always because that's just your nature and there's no getting around it. Yes, it's very similar to when in a personal relationship we reject forgiveness. Uh, we all know that there can be hard relationships that we face. Every one of us does in some form. And we think in certain instances, I'm going to hang on to my bitterness here. Uh, this person has come to me and asked forgiveness, but it feels freeing to be angry. Uh, to, to be a victim in our own mind. In reality, that, that is to be trapped. That is to be imprisoned by your anger. And, and tragically, uh, that is what wokeness does. It traps you in a cycle of anger and victimhood where you never can move past America's past failings, especially those that were codified in law and policy. And instead, you bring the, the anger of the past into the, into the present. And you then indict people who have had no participation, let's say, in slavery or Jim Crow or segregation, and are often bewildered by the claims of critical race theory. But that's what this system trains you to do. In doing so, it doesn't free you. It's not, it's not solving the problem of racism. It's actually entrapping you. Satan is actually behind this system, and, and he loves it because there's no forgiveness in it. There's no peace in it. And there certainly is no gospel unity in the name of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a neo-Marxist system. Uh, Before we go to break here, can you give us a definition of critical race theory and wokeness? Yes, critical race theory is the view that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics with white people effectively in neo-Marxist terms as oppressors, people of color as the oppressed. Wokeness is the broader mindset and mentality, I believe, that embracing critical race theory creates. So lots of people are never going to read a page of CRT, but they can be woke, which means being awake to the nature of systemic racism and inequality in America. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness. How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Now, when you think about the broader culture, there are major concerns about critical race theory and this call to become woke. But as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I'm most concerned about the problematic elements of the church embracing critical race theory. So let's talk about why it's problematic and where you see this headed if the church doesn't wake up. Yeah, great question. As I say in uh, Christianity and Wokeness, this new book, fundamentally, this is not the way to view the world because critical race theory, if embraced, actually trains you in neo-racism. It's mm-hmm. grounded in race essentialism, or what is sometimes called strategic essentialism. Critical race theory is not actually grounded in the Christian faith or in a foundational truth system. It's grounded in midair. Its feet are firmly planted in midair. It's a postmodern system, but it trains us to at least act as if race is a real thing. And in doing so, it then builds off of that and says the history of America means that whiteness effectively creates a system of white supremacy that entraps people of color. And so we need to recognize this is a system that is making truth claims, not truth claims that are grounded in Christianity, uh, but truth claims that are grounded in neo-Marxist ideology. And the Christian faith speaks a much, much better word. It trains us that everybody is made in the image of God, that we have all fallen in Adam, Genesis 3, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, and that we do all commit sins against one another. We do show partiality against one another, including because of skin color and background, and that is vile. That's sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Christian faith actually gives you the moral framework to know that racism is wrong, unlike postmodernism, which has no such foundation. Now, do critical race theorists um, see is, uh, CRT running parallel to Christianity in that social justice is ultimately the goal? Or do they, as neo-Marxists, reject the notion of religion or Christianity in particular as being part of the problem? That's a great question. You hear different tones from different people. Probably the best known woke voice in America today is Ibram X. Kendi, mm-hmm. a professor at Boston University. And Kendi rejects the form of Christianity, some sort of undefined form, but he rejects Protestant Christianity for what he calls anti-racism. And he has gone so far as to say that, this is a direct quote, anti-racism is life. And what he seems to mean by that is that even though he doesn't give you a fully coherent religious worldview, actually, Uh, his version of wokeness can function in those terms. If you will embrace being an anti-racist and working for social justice through anti-racism, you will end up uh, partaking of life. You will end up fully living. So we need to recognize that what voices like Kendi's offer us may not have a fully mapped out religious worldview, but they at least are functioning as if their worldview is the true one, and they and that we should not follow the Christian worldview, we should follow them. And there we see that these are oppositional systems. You cannot blend Christianity with critical race theory or with wokeness or with intersectionality the way people say you can. Now, how does this 
uh, align with or does it align with um, the liberal view of Christianity in which the general moral good, as opposed to the redemption of the individual soul through Jesus Christ, is ultimately the goal? Does this appeal to um, the, the, the more of a liberal view of, of Christianity? That is the point I make in the opening pages of this book. Uh, I think that this is basically a racialized form of the social gospel of a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. So I, I think this is new in one sense in that it's strongly focused on solving so-called systemic racism, which is basically a made up concept today in America from the left. But I, I do think it has all the, the infrastructure. It, it's built on the skeleton of the social gospel of a hundred years ago, which we thought in Protestant circles basically died out. Uh, Georgina, it turns out that the social gospel is not dead at all. No, It's back. It has a new spin. It has a strongly racial spin uh, that fits our age because everybody in America is terrified of being even called a racist. If you even throw the charge of racism in many people's direction, they, they will fall to the ground. They won't think it through. They won't defend themselves. They won't separate genuine partiality, true racism, so-called, from from fake racist charges. They will simply flee. And uh, anti-racists and woke voices and critical race theorists know that. And very, very few people will respond to the system. Very few people will destroy the stronghold in the 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6 cents. And that is a huge part of why the racialized social gospel is advancing so imperially today. Mm. And why your book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness, is so important right now so that we can understand what's happening. And the fact that, from my perspective, this is a devilish plot to try to weaken the church and undermine God's calling on his people. Now, can you explain the concepts? You kind of touched on them a little bit. The concepts of white privilege and white supremacy, which, again, are used to bludgeon uh, Caucasians in our culture. Yeah, white privilege basically means that because white people are the dominant group, the majority group in American culture, there's just a horde of benefits that they have that people of color cannot have. So America is not an equal society um, because wokeness functions out of the the ideology of, of neo-Marxism, and it believes that everybody should have equality of outcome, it believes that fundamentally to even have a majority culture is basically wrong. So white privilege is a very bad thing. I say this in the book, Georgine, but I think much of what woke voices call white privilege and indict as sinful and wrong is simply a function of having a majority culture. Mm -hmm. Most countries in the world have a majority culture. And there are some societal norms in Japan or in Russia or in Nigeria uh, or in Canada, places in Canada. Majority culture should not be understood as perfect, nor do I think, at least in a lot of places, should it be understood as inherently fundamentally evil. It's really a blend of things. But what critical race theory and wokeness do is poison majority culture, weaponize majority culture, and tell us that when you have a lot of white people, you have this condition of white supremacy. That's the second term you asked about. White supremacy does not refer to burning crosses in front yards anymore. It refers to what happens when white people are white out in public. 
And that means that white people are constantly transmitting the biopower of whiteness. Uh, they're committing all sorts of what are called microaggressions in conversation, where because they are the, the majority group, they are effectively oppressing people, whether or not they ever say something racist or do something racist or not. So as you said a minute ago, this is a devilish system because it tells you that you are inherently racist as a white person or if you're somebody who hasn't challenged white supremacy. And then if you deny that you're a racist, it says, see, your denial proves that you're a racist. So it has you either way. It has all the exits covered. And that's one of the ways that it shows that it is uh, a bankrupt system. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation this afternoon with Dr. Owen Strand, the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm so honored to have uh, Dr. Owen Strand uh, as our guest this afternoon. His book, uh, most recently, Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. I think there's something appealing in general to believers who want desperately to be relevant in the culture, who want to address uh, issues of wrong and to try to set them right. Uh, the, the phrase social justice just appeals to the Christian heart where you want to to see things um, uh, repaired. And yet um, there is a move afoot that uh, would would draw us in and draw us away from what the scriptures teach. And I appreciate so much what this book, Christianity and Wokeness, does in helping to inform us not only what it means, how it's infiltrating the church, but what we can do uh, to stop it. Uh, because as followers of Jesus, our primary concern, I mean, the culture is going to go uh, its way. But what I'm primarily concerned about as a Christian is what does this mean for the church? And are we being distracted and, and lured away from what God is calling us to do? Now, Dr. Strand, do you think that um, uh, there is a purposeful indoctrination happening in the media, in the culture and schools and even in our churches? And what does that mean for believers and the church moving forward? Yeah, there are hard forms and softer forms. The harder forms are typically in our public school classrooms today, where critical race theory is definitely being taught. Uh, the left has reacted to the backlash, the just backlash, against CRT and wokeness by saying that conservatives and the far right are making CRT this boogeyman, uh, and, and they're, they're protesting that um, teaching against racism is happening in schools, and, and so the far right doesn't want to acknowledge racism. Again, it's, it's, it's creating this boogeyman. That is not at all the case. Um, CRT is very clearly getting into our schools. To give just one example, the Buffalo school system uh, was outed through internal documents uh, as teaching that white people are effectively white supremacists, because the kind of ideas that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so this is out there. This is, this, is, this is in the mix. We should assume it's in the boardroom. Uh, it's, it's now increasingly in movies. It's in public schools. It's in entertainment. And it's definitely getting into the church. In many cases, it gets into the church in a soft form. And that's, that's the way it works with the social gospel as well. Very few Protestant pastors are going to stand up and give an hour-long diatribe about critical race theory in, in a pro-CRT way. What they're going to do is they're going to Christianize it, 
and that's compromised, but they're going to say, we need to think through white fragility, white privilege, white supremacy. We need to think about um, uh, systemic racism and structural inequality. And that's the way that, that wokeness is getting into the church today, through the usage of those terms and then through literature that promotes this worldview, even though many pastors will say they're not themselves fully woke or fully pro-CRT. They're just trying to introduce some of the ideas for consideration. And it's through such weak and compromised leadership that the church is being influenced by the woke social gospel. Hmm. My next question was going to be, what are some of the signs of a woke church? And you've answered that question. But how can we address our concerns with church leadership? It, it can be awkward. It can be uh, challenging, strained. It, how can we approach as parishioners and, and perhaps among our listeners today, some leaders in the church? How can we do that in a way that's consistent with a, a Christian worldview, but addresses what's going wrong? Great question. As I say in Christianity and Wokeness, my new book, life is too short to sit under unsound doctrine. So what you need to do if these ideas are getting into your church, and you will be able to tell, you will know when secular sociology is coming into the pulpit and and the preacher is no longer standing upon the Word of God. If you hear the kind of ideas that we have talked about in this show, uh, then indeed you are hearing Wokeness talking. And I would encourage your listeners and I know you have many, to make an appointment with their pastor, their elders, whoever it may be, and sit them down and graciously talk through their convictional concerns. And if the leadership does not change course, does not repent, that's what they should do, uh, then it is time for you to find a new church, and you should do so uh, with wind in your sails, because you do not want to be taken captive by godless ideology, Colossians 2.8. And if you have a family as many folks will, you don't want them to be taken captive. You want to sit under sound doctrine, and you want to sit under the ministry of Christ's gospel, which is not a gospel fundamentally of of racial hostility. It is a gospel of fundamental unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's at stake if the Church veers off course, as it sometimes does, uh, with critical race theory and becoming woke, reflecting the culture rather than the gospel? What's going to happen is what happened 100 years ago with the social gospel, which tore through evangelicalism like a tornado. Um, Basically, the social gospel took over many churches, many schools, many seminaries, many institutions, missions, agencies, and so on. And it corrupted them. And it caused many uh, one-time evangelical institutions to stop preaching the gospel of the new birth and to start preaching the gospel of cultural change. And to this day, the American mainline is still dying on the vine because of the, the introduction of the social gospel roughly 100 years ago. If we do not want that to happen in our time again, basically 100 years later, uh, we are going to have to fight like crazy, not fighting out of hatred of flesh and blood, uh, fighting out of love, love for God, love for God's truth, and love for image bearers. And church members, we don't want taken captive by these ideologies. We know how this story plays out. It played out just 100 years ago. There are books, dozens of books, written about the effects of the social gospel. And uh, it's going to happen again. It is now playing out in real time again. Satan is using a racialized social gospel in our day. And it is time for every Christian to get to the ramparts. It is time for every Christian to get to the wall. One of the major ways 
you can do that. Whether you are in ministry or not, whether you ever spend a minute in a seminary class or not, it does not matter. You can get equipped on these issues. You can read a book like mine, Christianity and Wokeness. You can pick up Bodie Bauckham's Fault Line. Mm-hmm. You can get Jeffrey Johnson's What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. And you can get equipped. And then you can start talking to people in your church, in your social group, in your workplace, in your school, and you can take a stand. And oftentimes, you actually don't need 6,000 people to take a stand for it to be effective. In many cases, the fire is lit by just one person in a community, in a church, in whatever environment it may be. So do not think that you are too small for the task and that God cannot use you because perhaps you may not be in ministry. That is a lie. God will use a Christian as salt light in incredible ways if we will stand on the Word of God. Amen. We're talking about Christianity and wokeness. I should mention that you have a recommended uh, recommended reading list, which is very helpful. You have some secular sources to understand wokeness uh, from proponents, as well as understanding wokeness from non-Christians and to answer wokeness for Christians. So that's in the book, as well as a glossary of terms as you're hearing them used to understand what's meant by them so that we can speak clearly and with understanding about this this issue in our day. Once again, the book is titled Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books just out, and I would highly recommend you read it if you want to be relevant and understand what's happening in the culture. I think you need to, to do so with, you know, on your knees praying, God, how would you use me to speak truth to the culture and to the church uh, as needed. Uh, Dr. Strand, I am so grateful for you and your willingness to stand on truth and equip fellow believers so that we can honor Christ in our day here in the 21st century. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, those are very gracious words. I appreciate you very much, Georgine, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. By the way, if you happen to be in your car and didn't get the title of the book, you can go to The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or kpdq.com. You can call the office. We want to make sure you get Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm not sure who the runner-up was for this year's competition for the Ronald Reagan Freedom Award, but we suspect he finished a distant second. So writes Douglas Andrews on the award recently given to Volodymyr Zelensky. In announcing the award, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute noted that Zelensky's courageous fight against tyranny and his indomitable stance for freedom and democracy were the reason for the award. The world applauds President Zelensky and all that he stands for, democracy, individual liberty, freedom and hope. That's Fred Ryan, chairman of the foundation's board of trustees. It's rare these days with world leaders living such pampered lives when a man and a moment come together as they did late last month when the Russians invaded Ukraine and the U.S. offered Zelensky safe passage out of the capital city of Kiev. The fight is here, he said. I need ammunition, not a ride. So much for the pre-war New York Times op-ed that ran under the headline, The Comedian Turned President is Seriously In Over His Head. Oh, really? Well, Zelensky, a 44-year-old husband and father, was sworn in as president of Ukraine on the 20th of May in 2019, and he's become the face of his country's resistance against their Russian invaders. In a nation 
that had become known for its corruption. Indeed, a nation whose leading energy company, Burisma, had been paying Hunter Biden a multi-million dollar annual salary, despite the fact that he knew nothing about energy and nothing about the country or its people. Zelensky ran on a platform of anti-corruption and national unity. Despite being a political novice and having no military background, he's earned the respect of his countrymen and those around the world by refusing to flee the capital, by encouraging Ukrainians to take up arms and fight, and by using his communication skills to galvanize the world against Russia. Well, like the Gipper himself, Zelensky is a former actor. He was also a stand-up comic, but he's clearly no joke. All one need do is compare Zelensky's resolve to that of Ashraf Ghani, our man in Afghanistan who last summer uh, skedaddled as the Taliban approached Kabul, reportedly with tens of millions of dollars stuffed into his uh, getaway chopper. Well, Zelensky thus became the 11th recipient of the foundation's highest honor, whose uh, namesake was more than any other man responsible for the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union. Other Reagan Freedom Award winners have included former Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, Former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, His Majesty King Hussein I of Jordan, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, President George Herbert Walker Bush, Soviet dissident and author Natan Sharansky, and Polish resistance leader and President Lech Walesa. Well, as Americans, we know that freedom is as much a part of uh, of us as our blood. Ronald Reagan himself said, it's not a commodity. It can't be bought, can't be sold, and can't be bartered away. The truth is that the word freedom is deceptively simple. It's a word that describes the God-given condition of the human soul. Reagan also said tyranny is a parasite that saps the strength of a nation in its way. Zelensky seems unwilling to submit his country to that fate. I am here, Zelensky said in a video posted shortly after the invasion when it was thought that the Russians would take Kiev in a matter of days. We are not putting down arms. We will be defending our country because our weapons is truth, and our truth is that this is our land, our country, our children, and we will defend it at this time and all the time. That is it. That's all I wanted to tell you. Glory to Ukraine, end quote. Glory to Volodymyr Zelensky and his fellow freedom fighters. As Reagan put it, evil is powerless if good is unafraid, and Mr. Zelensky is unafraid. Today we learned of the bombing of a maternity hospital. There were women there giving birth, women there with their newborn babies, and others anticipating the birth of their children. Some were um, evacuated from the facility after it was bombed. We don't know what the death toll is there, but it's just one, the latest example of what's happening in Ukraine. I know many are praying for God to intervene there. Many are praying that... um, Vladimir Putin would have a change of heart and that if his plans continue, if he continues to order the direction that the military is going, that God would destroy him as the leader of his country. Uh, so much is is happening there. There's debate over how to bring assistance to the people of Ukraine in what form and whether or not certain actions might uh, ultimately lead to what would become World War III. Now, some are arguing that we're already at war with Russia, the rest of the world, given what's happened there. Uh, but wisdom is what we need our leaders to um, to embrace as they make decisions about what's the right thing to do. Uh, and we certainly ought to be praying for our president, for our military leaders and other decision makers as they're determining how we can come alongside and support the Ukrainians in their effort to survive and to fight back. We certainly don't want to be plunged into World War III and there 
some questions as to whether or not um, the Polish um, aircraft that they've offered to make available, if we were to make them available as a uh, middleman, if you will, to the Ukrainians, if that would be a pretext for the use of nuclear weapons or the start of World War III, we just need to pray for wisdom for those who are making decisions that there would be um, the courage to make difficult decisions that ultimately will determine or at least contribute to the future of Ukraine. And I feel for the Russian people as well, uh, the lack of information, misinformation, misguided, uh, and so on. Uh, so many people uh, don't know what's actually happening. Those who do and have protested, it has cost them a great deal. We know that church leaders in Russia, a good number of them have come forward and oppose the action that's taking place. And we've heard from at least a few members of the Russian military. We don't know if they represent a broad swath of uh, the military, but these were young men who had no idea what they were coming uh, into Ukraine to do. They had expectations that were not realized and re- described themselves as cannon fodder. Uh, one can only hope and pray that we can avoid a broadening of this conflict, even though we know that uh, Vladimir Putin has ambitions to broaden and to restore the former historic Soviet Union in all of its uh, all of its elements. So let's continue to pray. But congratulations to Volodymyr Zelensky for the Ronald Reagan Freedom Award issued uh, just yesterday. All right. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blind for producing. Uh, he's also engineering today's program as Sam Maupin has taken the day. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.